A highly trained and well-equipped North Korean army swarmed across the 38th parallel to attack unprepared South Korean defenders. Caught off guard, they were all but overwhelmed until the United Nations took its historic vote to intervene. While the Korean Republicans fought a desperate delaying action, a United Nations police force with General Douglas MacArthur as Commander-in-Chief was formed. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast, episode 13. I'm RC. And I'm Matt. And now we'll be continuing with part three of the Korean War. Now, if you remember back to our previous episodes where we say Republic of Korean troops don't have a lot of arms that could really take on, you know, a tank or any major operation. They only have small arms, and most of their troops are either home at their farms or at a new officer's club. So that is a problem, and really it's the Republic of Korean military does put up a fight, but really the most logical decision you can make is run because there isn't a lot of you and this is the start of a civil war. You see guys that are that speak the same exact language of you. All they have is a different uniform. Really confusing and it's really hard to get the news out that, hey, war started. So if you see a bunch of guys who can speak your language and are just like, hey, we're taking over your country uh, for the name of Kim Il-sung and uh, the uh, glorious ideas of communism, you're going to be like, uh, okay, cool, how about no? And then they roll up in a T-34 uh, tank and fire a few shots at you, and you're like, okay, sure, I'm going to go south. Because there's no way really else to go than south. And you know the Americans have an area around uh, Pusan established for uh, port reasons for shipping items in and out for the United States government and uh, now that the on the 27th after, so invasion on the 25th on the 27th now Douglas MacArthur is the head of UN forces to really establish and defend the Republic of Korea from its invading northern brethren in this civil war because the Soviets left so you know Douglas MacArthur and uh, some American troops are down in Busan, so really the best thing you can do is keep on fighting a very, very quickly uh, collapsing perimeter in this new war, and really there's only th- the only thing you can do is delaying actions which aren't doing that great, because once again they only have rifles and pistols and no artillery and no tanks, so when you get blasted from the skies, blasted from artillery and blasted from tanks, Really, the best thing you can do is retreat. So, that's the situation that Douglas MacArthur is coming into. Both what we outlined in the last episode where U.S. troops in Japan, which is the closest response force available that isn't the Republic of Korean Army, coming, but they are lacking in recent training and also have not been really uh, physically prepared to engage in a large-scale conflict. But with Republic of Korean troops falling by the wayside, and with Sigmund Rhee's eventual evacuation, even though he did not want to evacuate, but, you know, when push comes to shove and your capital is completely collapsing and any amount of defense is falling apart on the wayside, and really the only thing left is a small perimeter in Seoul and then a uh, decently large perimeter around the port city of Busan, you have nothing else to really fall back on but evacuate. So Sigmund Rhee short time as leader of Korea is now fleeing from a civil war of Koreans. So that's the situation that we're in. 
But Douglas MacArthur is ready to engage in a stop of the advance of the Koreans and begin to slowly push back and has a little trick up his sleeve learned from his previous experience in World War II. So while the Korean and American Allied troops were being pushed out of the peninsula, the one way that the Americans could respond quickly was with their air power. You see, they had planes stationed in Japan and in Formosa, so they were able to quickly deploy these people right after the UN resolution on June 25th. So the 26th to the 27th, while on the ground there's a fighting retreat, in the air the Americans had mostly managed to achieve air superiority. So while... Airplanes alone in this period cannot win a war. At the very least, having air superiority allows them to bomb North Korean positions with almost impunity. In fact, Douglas MacArthur ordered B-29 Super Fortress strategic bombers, you know, the big ones that drop nukes on Japan, to fly low over North Korean positions north of Seoul. is effectively just a show of power. They weren't really built for tactical bombing purposes. You know, they're the fly high, drop tens of thousands of pounds of bombs on one target and then fly away, not the low fly, you know, bomb some tanks. So they weren't that effective, but seeing a gigantic bomber plane drop 10,000 pounds of bombs somewhere near your tank position definitely is intimidating, which was pretty much the only goal of this. They only used four of these things and they just followed roadways, but... Air power is a thing that the Americans can assist in. They sent some of their jet fighters, the P-80s, which were able to shoot down the Russian-built Yak fighters for the most part. But again, this can't stop the North Koreans from pushing the South Koreans back. American air power is one thing that is being used, but it can't, you know, dig into a trench. It, It can't hold a position. So there's only so much it's useful for. Plus, with the fighting retreat currently going on, it's not like they're getting targets marked very well, because for the most part, the South Korean forces are moving back. I mean, they were basically, the American airplanes, and some South Korean and some Japanese, were effectively just looking for whatever looked like a target, whether they knew it was or not. You know, a large group of people, it's probably North Korean troops, let's just drop a couple bombs. I don't know if they were or not, but... That is one area that the Americans were actually able to help at this point, but it all keeps going back to South Korea, you know? They they just keep getting pushed back to Pusan, the southeast. It's not stopping. Now, there's lots of things you can say about Douglas MacArthur, but the one thing you can't say is that he's not a showman. He can make any amount of tiny little incidents be a massive bit of propaganda, mainly for himself, have a large ego, but also really knows how to show military might. But that also, the use of the B-29 might have also came from some other uh, lingering problems with the United States military, especially with the drop in funding post-World War II. Because of the extensive budget cuts that the United States really did across the board, uh, most of the military equipment that was available uh, that was new and brand new for U.S. forces to use was stuff relating to nuclear weapons. 
is really the believed idea of most American military planners is that the next war is probably going to be with the Soviets. And they need a lot of nukes and a lot of far-flying, big, powerful planes to drop those nukes from miles and miles above the sky. But that isn't the case. You're now in a shooting war, and this is an issue where another uh, World War II veteran, General Omar Bradley, of Normandy and Battle of the Bulge fame, was the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman. And he had to reorganize the United States military in order to be able to be f- to fight this new war that was very much like an old war. Despite the retreats elsewhere along the border, Seoul itself had not actually fallen yet. You see, think of the border right now as a diagonal line. So 40 miles from the border on the left of that line, you know, the up bit is Seoul, which hasn't fallen. It's encircled, save for the south, you know, northeast and west. But the North Korean troops aren't actually in the city yet. There's fierce fighting everywhere. But then on the east side, lower end, the North Korean troops have pushed a lot further because there's less city, there's less actual things to stop them. So Seoul is still holding while the rest of the line is being pushed back. But North Korean troops, as I said, are on the north and slowly pushing in. And you see there's a giant river, the Han River, that's the southern border of Seoul. It's got a couple bridges going across it, and the South Korean forces had planted explosives to blow them. You know, there's tanks rushing through, so let's slow their advance by blowing them. They still had about 10,000 troops right here fighting, you know, north of Seoul as a holding action as they're evacuating people out. The plan was for these bridges to remain until the tanks of the North Korean army reached the army headquarters that was in the south of Seoul. Because they figured by that point, most of the Korean army, the South Korean army, would have been evacuated by that point, including civilians, men, and material. There was miscommunication at some point. Around 2.59 a.m., as people continued to evacuate and the North Korean troops were still in the north of Seoul, not even in the city proper, the order was given for the bridges to blow. They exploded, killing estimated around five to 800 soldiers, civilians, you know, refugees just trying to escape the fighting. This trapped 10,000 South Korean troops who were still fighting in the north without an escape route. They would be captured, killed, or wounded. Even though the North Korean troops, after the bridges were blown, didn't actually reach you know, the bridges themselves until noon. So they could have waited at least five or eight more hours before blowing them, but somebody along the lines in the South Korea military got jumpy and was scared or something. In fact, the South Korean general who was fighting in the north with the troops, uh, affectionately nicknamed Fats by his forces because of his... Uh, he was he was a big man. Um, that's beside the point, though. He heard that the order was supposed to be given and was fighting it. He was like, no, we're still fighting up north. They're not in the city yet. you got to wait. you got to let us get our guys out. This is ridiculous. You're just going to kill half of our army right here. And that's exactly what happened. After the bridges were blown... A South Korean army that had about 98,000 men 
a week later had only 54,000 men. They lost 40,000 men in one week of fighting. You know, losing half of your army in one week is not a way to win a war. The South Koreans were kneecapped at this point. Not only were they being pushed, Seoul had fallen and all of its defenders fell with it. I mean, the only hope they had at this point was for some form of intervention somewhere, because something's got to give. U.S. troops, who would be under the U.N. banner, need to get onto the Korean Peninsula now. What U.S. troops are available on the peninsula already are falling back with ROK troops. And it is Douglas MacArthur's job to make sure that that stops. And it is his job of subordinates, particularly a man who was nicknamed Johnny Walker and General Church. These were the contacts that you had to find if you were going to be, you know, taken from Japan and moved to Korea, which is a situation that Colonel Brad Smith found himself in as him and a 540 group of uh, mainly clerks or uh, non-coms or, you know, men that don't really do a lot of combat and non-commissioned officers and, you know, men who are mainly there to occupy Japan are being airlifted to go help in Korea. This is one of the most unlucky bits of uh, abstral operations that these guys have to do. Not a lot of them are combat veterans because the veterans of World War II that did re-enlist were mainly the clerks. They didn't see a lot of combat. They don't really have a lot of like actual field fighting experience, but they were veterans of World War II. Uh, there were some combat veterans, and Brad Smith uh, was famous for being a pretty good strategical officer. So he is given the orders from Douglas MacArthur to go to Korea. And he is given, I have a direct quote of the order. When you get to Busan, head to Taejeon. We want to stop the North Koreans as far from Pusan as possible. Block the main road as far north as possible. Contact General Church in Korea as head of the advance party. If you can't locate him, go to Taejeon and beyond if you can. Sorry I can't give you more information. That's all I've got. Good luck to you. God bless your men. <laughs> so that's what they're given to go to Korea with. And they're airlifted in. But this will be the first time the North Koreans who are invading will face anything more than rifle fire. But that rifle fire, uh, you know, wasn't doing much. And neither would what they're bringing, which was uh, a small amount of mortars, a small amount of bazookas, a small amount of recoilless rifles, and some men that actually know how to kind of use this equipment. But they're facing off against hundreds of tanks. So Task Force Smith is moving up the Korean Peninsula in which they face their first mutiny, which is from Republic of Korean troops that are driving their transports who are like, hey, um, this is dumb. We should be going the other way. And they're just like, no, we're going to fight the North Koreans. And they're just like, ah, okay. And they all bail. So the <laughs> Brad Smith, Colonel Smith, drafts a lot of the guys that are uh, in, in the task force, this 580 group of men, to go stop the tide of the thousands of North Koreans pouring down the peninsula to uh, drive the trucks forward. Now, they reach... Uh, Tejan and begin to face their first amount of combat and what they do is they end up destroying a tank in which a little bit of the crew pops out, two Koreans surrender and the third one 
pops out from behind the burning wreckage with a PPSH submachine gun and just fires into the machine gun nest that they have established that they took out the tank by shooting at its treads, which was the advice given to them by veterans, and kills one of the members of Task Force Smith. That is the first death, but it won't be the last, of Task Force Smith. So it's important to point out that first engagement with a tank uh, is the first time Task Force Smith really dug in to really defend Tejan in the Battle of Osan. So during this situation, they only have two recoilless rifles that made it to Korea. They were There were eight in the group, but four made it out of Japan, but two are broken. So Task Force Smith is operating with two th- recoilless rifles that only have 18 heat round or high explosive anti-tank rounds. So that's the only thing they have to really take out these tanks, because other than that, they have uh, regular high explosive rounds to shoot at infantry, or they have bazooka rounds, which have deteriorated with age, because the last time they were manufactured is around near the end of World War II in 1945, and they've been sitting for five years. So uh, we have a situation where they don't really have a lot of firepower. It's the most firepower the North Koreans have faced so far, but it's not enough to take out these tanks. But this, that's not really a problem for the North Korean tanks because they just drive by Task Force Smith. Uh, they have, well, the United States has 105 millimeter howitzers that only can shoot anti-infantry rounds. That doesn't work when you have thousands of tanks storming to you and by you. The North Koreans don't really care about the American positions that much, and that begins to frustrate the troops of Task Force Smith as they attempt any way, any possible way, to take down these tanks, whether it's shooting at the tracks with their M1 Garand rifles or putting these 105mm anti-infantry rounds directly into the tanks. So they are dumping everything that they can uh, but really, the North Koreans seem to be not bothered, and there is an instance when the North Korean tanks actually fires around in the exact opposite direction of the American position. The Americans do get a success, though, in which they were able to have one of their lower commanding officers under Brad Smith shoot at one of the tanks, get himself wounded, but have an opportunity for the 105mm howitzer to pound three high explosive anti-infantry rounds into the back of the tank, ending up damaging it beyond repair and having the crew abandon the tank in which that crew was then shot. But by the end of that uh, fateful battle of tanks basically ignoring Task Force Smith and moving further down uh, the peninsula, which will be a problem later, uh, Task Force Smith took out four. Four out of thousands. Four tanks. And Task Force Smith had suffered, suffering 30 casualties from this little tank engagement. But that's not a problem. The problem is coming down the pike. Brad Smith, Colonel Smith, begins to fortify and dig in even more. Even though the tanks have passed, he knows that there might be troops following. And just 40 minutes later, he spots the two regiments of North Korean troops pouring down, ready to take them on. Task Force Smith is ready to fight, and uh, it would be lesser men who would order the retreat at the sight of them, but Colonel Smith was willing to put up the fight, and his men were willing to put up the fight as well in order to burn out some frustration from the tanks from earlier. That's the problem, is uh, the North Korean infantry didn't ignore them. 
they actually fought them. They fought them hard, suffering a, a bunch of casualties. Task Force Smith was being pounded to all hell, in which they began to leave men wounded and dying behind, which was against U.S. Army policy, and began to retreat. Colonel Smith didn't really know what to do. He could stand and fight, or he could order the retreat, and he began to order the retreat. But as the Task Force Smith kept popping from hill to hill, they developed a term called the bug out. Bug out will be yelled, and the men of that little position that have fortified themselves as quickly as possible would quickly run and every man to themselves back to the next good position to fight the North Koreans. And they began to work their way back, just like the Republic of Korean forces that were there days earlier. This is honestly a failure on Task Force Smith, but at least they were able to delay a bit longer than what was expected of 540 line cooks, clerks, and other non-combatant troops. Now, uh, this would result in 180 American dead and wounded and prisoners. An anecdote to understand the situation that Task Force Smith was in is one of uh, Smith's lieutenants was being begged by a wounded man, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to us? And the lieutenant just gave them a grenade and said that's the best we can do. This is a dire situation, and it's completely against U.S. Army standards. And men usually fight better when they know they're not going to be left behind, but Task Force Smith had to leave men behind. It would become a rallying cry for the rest of the Korean War of no more Task Force Smiths. No more Task Force Smiths. We were going to do better, and we were going to fight better, but we still have a problem on our hand. This is near the end of July. We're a month into this conflict, and we see no progress. Honestly, it seems like the North Koreans might win this one. Near this point, near the end of July, after the failure of Task Force Smith and the continued advance of the North Koreans, was when the American government realized the failure of their nuclear doctrine. Nuclear weapons would not be a good replacement for regular troops, as nuclear weapons were doing nothing to stop the North Korean advance. The occupation forces in the Asian area were insufficient, as demonstrated by Task Force Smith. Most of them were non-combat troops, and they weren't prepared enough to fight actual ground troops or to stop an invasion. So the United States did the unthinkable. They began to increase the size of the military. There was a call for manpower. It was clear that they would need tens of thousands of men to be brought into the military in order to help with this police action that the UN was preparing. The U.S. government also federalized some divisions of National Guard troops. They figured it was easier to get rid of National Guard divisions after the war was over with than to reduce the size of the military, because Congress at this point still did not want to have to maintain a large standing military. Despite the doctrine being proven a failure, you know, old habits die hard. Now, this federalization of the National Guard was not necessarily a popular move. A lot of these men kind of enjoyed being paid and not really doing much, and a lot of them were older as well. You know, they, they were seen as kind of a, you know, guardsmen, not fighting forces. So 
a lot of public support was in favor of sending younger men to go fight. You know, that's their place. A lot of these older guys who were in the National Guard fought in World War II, which was only five years before. So why should they have to be, you know, send the younger guys in? This is where the popularity of the Korean War started to wane a bit, but it'll it'll fall later. On July 19th, Truman sent a message to Congress. He wanted an emergency $10 billion defense appropriation, which was the entire fiscal 1951 budget, was only $4 billion, and it had been approved on July 1st. So that's two times the entire budget they've already allocated for 1951 he wants for the military. They had a statutory limit on the military size at around 2 million men. Uh, he wanted that to be raised to 3.2 million men. Truman's thinking was, look, a bunch of conscripts are not going to get the job done. We need to suddenly push for a more professionalized military in order to end this police action quickly. You know, it's kind of comparable to if you think the Civil War, you know. If we just get a bunch of conscripts, the war will be over in a few months. Truman's thinking was, no, okay, we need to take this seriously now to get it over with quickly. We need to get big, go hard, and then we can go home. Luckily, this $10 billion request came near the high mark of support for the war among the public. Republicans were all too happy to jump at the opportunity to fund the military more, and they wanted to give Truman government whatever it needed. He received $11 billion from his request of $10 billion, and he was authorized to raise all the troops he needed. Senator Lyndon Johnson of Texas summarized the mood in a speech. Korea, he cried, will go down in history as a slaughterhouse for democracy or as a graveyard for aggression. Owen Brewster of Maine said that he would allow MacArthur to use the atomic bomb at his discretion. MacArthur's delaying actions and the Pusan perimeter had created the time that America needed to mobilize its stagnant military and begin to rearm post-World War II. No longer would it be a simple occupation force. Now they were mobilizing to fight the North Koreans with whatever force they could muster. Now that all of these new guardsmen, National Guardsmen, were coming over. You don't need to train them. They're either veterans of World War II or have already been trained. And then large amounts of the United States military that was stationed in Japan has been moved over to the port of Busan. This is where Douglas MacArthur is going to establish a hardline perimeter to stop the advance of North Koreans for real. So a perimeter is established with the 2nd Infantry Division and I-Corps. There's also large contingents of the United States Marines. This is where the advance of the North Koreans stopped. Pusan had been secured by the I-Corps and the 1st Infantry Division and where what would become the 8th Army of the United States Army would be established. So this is extremely important because it stopped the advance, and also, uh, fun fact, the Koreans, out, North Koreans, outran their supply lines drastically, so their tanks were running out of gas, they were running out of ammunition, they were running out of a bunch of supplies, so, when it came to this situation, MacArthur and 
Republic of Korean and United States forces were in a pretty okay position to begin a push backwards. And a fun situation that did happen is with uh, some Marine Corps uh, regiments that would capture hills, they would raise flags like at Iwo Jima, but on every hill they took while they're pushing back to the Korean Peninsula. But that's just a fun little antidote. The advance of North Korea was stopped, and the uh, their soon-to-begin retreat had started as Busan began to fill with more and more National Guard regiments and divisions. The United States and, in this case, United Nations forces were completely bulked up and began pushing slowly back up near the end of September. Now... This is where a situation had developed that was extremely important. We needed to talk about what secret trick MacArthur had up his sleeve. So with the breakout in Pusan going and starting and getting momentum on the side of the United Nations forces, Douglas MacArthur had a plan. He was going to land the 1st Marine Division and the 7th Infantry Division and around 9,000 Republic of Korean forces at a place called Incheon, which is a port city near Seoul. Now, this was going to be uh, a large amphibious operation on the scale of D-Day in Normandy with 40,000 men going into this. Uh, The issue is the United States Navy was against this because Inchon had a weird tidal pattern in which uh, the tide would go out for 12 hours and come in for 12 hours. There was a uh, island that was fortified in that bay, and it was a thick, rocky beach that led up to a seawall, which would be extremely difficult for troops to get to the seawall and then get over the seawall. Now, Douglas MacArthur wasn't afraid of using a bit of you know, charisma and convincing to tell these Navy heads that, hey, you were able to do D-Day. You were able to do landings all over the Pacific. Why is this any different than what you did just five years earlier? And they're just like, okay, well, if we could do that, we can do this. And Douglas MacArthur had convinced them to land in Inchon. So dumping 49,000 troops onto the beaches on Inchon caused a massive breakout, which the North Koreans were not ready for. P- Korean, they pushed to Seoul as Inchon's own very, very close to Seoul and basically shows to the North Koreans, oh, if this landing in Inchon as a breakout cuts us off from our already really, really behind supply lines, uh, we'll have most of our army completely surrounded because Pusan's beginning to push and push and push forward and we could be sandwiched. So we need to do something we need to shorten our lines quickly. So a uh, pullback of North Korean forces started to happen as the uh, Kim Il-sung's advisors began to uh, tell him that he needs to really, really pull back and get his troops out of there because they don't want to run out of supplies, which they were doing drastically, and they don't want to be completely surrounded and blocked off from being able to retreat by this new landing in Inchon, and as uh, forces begin to pile in and a battle for Seoul starts to come out. So that's where we are, is really the land that that the North Koreans took, we're going to get completely gobbled 
By September 28th, the forces of Inchon had moved far enough east to recapture the city of Seoul and quell most of the fighting there, to the point where Rhee and MacArthur managed to make a visit back to the city, and Rhee began to reassert his political control of the country. MacArthur gave a speech portion of it saying by the grace of the merciful providence our forces fighting under the standard of that greatest hope and inspiration of mankind the united nations have liberated this ancient capital city of korea it has been freed from the despotism of communist rule and its citizens once more have the opportunity for that immutable concept of life which holds invincibly to the primacy of individual liberty and personal dignity he continued on for a, a long long more time uh, he liked talking, and he did not like the UN, which is kind of funny because he used it in a lot of his speeches as, you know, this is the primacy of mankind fighting, but he did not like them at all, and he resented the fact that he was fighting under the UN banner and not under the American banner. That's beside the point, though. The point is, Seoul is retaken, and by October 9th, the South Korean government and Time magazine both declared the war to be over. The North Koreans were basically pushed back up to the 38th parallel by this point. And by all accounts, in three months, the UN coalition forces had destroyed the North Korean invaders and pushed them back to whence they came. There was to be peace in Korea for the time being. Now that the situation is believed to be completely resolved and the situation is uh, back at the 38th parallel, there's people like President Harry Truman, who believed the war should be stopped at the 38th parallel, and was telling his commander-in-chief, Douglas MacArthur, to stop at the 38th parallel. But there's people like Dean Acheson and Douglas MacArthur who believe that that's just an arbitrary line, and really you can't expect soldiers to just stop at, you know, like a little line drawn in the sand. That's ridiculous. It, do it doesn't take into account anything about the terrain or who's there or what's going on. And, it's, you know, we just can't stop at, like, a one gigantic straight line across the sand. So we have to keep going. And uh, the vague notions that were established by the U.N. Uh, resolutions to both uh, condemn and then also engage the North Koreans said to establish peace. Not to establish the border, but to establish the peace and uh, bring back security in the area. What's the best way to establish security? Well, you know, keep going. We already, you know, have good momentum as human forces. We are uh, pushing them back drastically, and it's only three months into the war, and we've basically reversed all the gains that have been made by, you know, the North Koreans. But Harry Truman was against that drastically and was telling Truman not to cross the 30th parallel. Don't cross the 30th parallel. Truman was telling MacArthur not to cross the 38th parallel. But MacArthur, with the as commander of the United Nations, not really the commander of U.S. forces, but the commander of the United Nations forces, decided that the best way to secure this area and secure international peace and security was to take out the North Koreans. So he crossed over in, on the 27th of September to move out into North Korea across the 30th parallel. And MacArthur is now engaging in conflict with North Korea, which is exactly you know what he wanted, what Dean Addison wants, and what Sigmund Rhee wants. Sigmund Rhee wants United, United Korea and wants Korea to be 
uh, all under basically his government. And uh, remember, this idea lasts for a very long time until the modern day in which uh, the Korea should be united and uh, whatever government north or south should be the legitimate government of Korea. So Sigmund Rhee is also, you know, like, yeah, let's go. And Douglas MacArthur is 100% obliging them. He is going across the border and he is going to go all the way up and take out North Korea and completely unite it. So the advances are made drastically, drastically, as United States forces continue to push a battered North Korean force that is uh, still trying to readjust and reorganize. Because if you imagine that if you viewed have spent thousands of men down south and then not even three months later, they're back up north, you have kind of an organizational nightmare on your hands. So you have the advantage by continuing to press forward into uh, North Korea. And in September and October, massive gains are made by uh, UN forces as they move further and further up the Korean Peninsula. So it was kind of an exact same for UN forces advancing north as it was for the north going south, where the ability to fight and willingness to fight of the North Korean forces was, you know, there, but it wasn't really resilient. Uh, even though the South Korean forces lacked, you know, the artillery and tanks that the North Koreans had, the North Koreans lacked the, really the will to continue fighting. Even with Kim Il-sung's orders to be uh, a no-step-back Stalingrad-esque, you will be shot, orders, Pyongyang was reached around the 15th of October and was captured on the 19th of October. So when your capital is captured that quickly, just like Seoul was captured very quickly, this doesn't bode well. And UN, U.S. forces and Republic of Korean forces and U.N. forces can advance further and further up. North Korean forces begin to surrender and also suffer massive casualties as UN forces continue to advance up the peninsula. This is really, really good if you're, you know, Dean Addison or Douglas MacArthur or Sigmund Rhee. It looks like it's going extremely well. And by late October, you're advancing closer and closer to an area that's extremely important. And I'm going to call it right now. It's called the Yalu River. Now, the Yalu River is a pretty crucial place. And the thing that was told to me in my university class on the Korean War is imagine if a country that was completely against the United States' ideology completely, like just anti-everything that involved the United States, got involved in a military operation in Mexico, and got involved in a Mexican Civil War, and was drastically approaching very, very quickly within the space of months across hundreds of miles closer and closer to the Rio Grande River, what would your reaction be? What would the average American reaction be? Well, it would obviously be something, well, clearly this is extremely dangerous for the United States, and we have to get involved. So imagine that idea in your head, and think of a man that we've been talking about a good amount in previous episodes, and his name is Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong is looking at the Yalu River and seeing these UN forces gobbling a communist force, and is approaching the Yalu River drastically, and by the end of October to early November is if days, if not a week away, from being able to go right on the Yalu River and could even cross the Yalu River and take out 
his new Chinese government, considering the United States is real buddy-buddy with Chiang Kai-shek over in Taiwan, the man who just lost a civil war against Mao not even a year earlier. So, what are you to do? And that is where we have a little special treat for you. The end of the war seemed in sight as the Allies pushed north toward the North Korean capital of Pyongyang and further northward to the Manchurian and Siberian borders. Then it happened. The Chinese Red Armies, numbering hundreds of thousands, swarmed over the frontier against thinly held United Nations positions. Confronted by overwhelming numbers, UN armies were forced into inevitable retreat. Thank you guys for tuning into the Cleocast, episode 13, part 3 of the Korean War. We're going to catch you next week with the part 4, which may or may not be the conclusion. We're not sure yet. Be sure to subscribe to our Acast, or we post these on YouTube as well. You can follow us on Twitter at History. You can also email us with questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions at quarecasters at gmail.com. That's Q-U-A-R-C-A-S-T-E-R-S at gmail.com. All those links you can find in the description below. And again, I've been RC. And I've been Matt. And we're going to thank you for listening. Join us next time, part four.